All right. Well, everyone, this is a special edition of the Particular Baptist Podcast. We're here at the 2022 Keach Conference here in Hampton, Virginia. Today we have Pastor Tim Decker, who was one of our keynote speakers, and he spoke on the first two paragraphs of Chapter 15 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Thanks for joining us today, Pastor. It's good to be here with you guys yeah. again. So we have a few questions for you. So you spoke first, right? You talked about kind of the nature of repentance and, uh, you know, relating to conversion experience and the dangers of, you know, putting our conversion on that experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about the etymology from the Greek and Hebrew on repentance? What, how is that playing the significance of the topic? Uh, <clears throat> just to explain what the concept is, to understand it means a turn, a, a change of some kind. And so there's two words in Hebrew that kind of communicate that concept, two words in Greek. Really, the Greek word helps us the most, or, or the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn, uh, epistrepho to mean turning back or turning away from, uh, metanoia means a change of mind, or how your mind is after, literally what it means. And so that's where repentance communicates, uh, a different disposition. You, as it's unfolded, you no longer love your sin, you now hate your sin. You no longer hate God, you now love God. And so that gets communicated in, you know, the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being inserted in a new spirit. And so now your your heart pants after God, exp- uh, expressing a display of a changed mind. So that would be the, the, the why I even would mention the, the Hebrew and Greek words. The other one that I didn't mention was the nicham, um, just the, 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 the notion of relief. But it also can be used as a way of expressing... Uh, a relenting of some kind. It's often most used of God, actually. Uh, when you see that use of it, it's usually of God relenting, and which brings up another issue that is not about what we're talking about here. But we would, uh, we can speak of that later. Yeah, changing his mind, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Gets us into some hot water. Yeah, there. we're not going to talk about that. No. That was very interesting about the Hebrew word, though. How it, even in the pronunciation of it, it communicates the message. Is yeah. that a common tactic that's used in in Hebrew language? Sure. It is. Sure. Okay. I'm not the Hebrew prof, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's an onomatopoeia. We we have them in English. They have them in Hebrew, and uh, yeah, and you can hear the in the the, the inhaling of the knee and then the exhale ham. <sighs> and so you can kind of hear the relief there. So you had talked about um, kind of a, a pastoral pessimism that can creep in as it relates to repentance. That maybe God can't work as much as He could. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to encourage pastors. I've experienced this myself. Uh, because we believe in total depravity and because we know where we've come from personally and we've seen the world, we see the world, we almost get so pessimistic as if uh, God's unconditional election, Christ's particular redemption, the Spirit's irresistible effectual calling and grace uh, is not operative or it cannot overcome that total depravity. We know intellectually that's not true, but we enter the pulpit often with that kind of demeanor, a pessimistic, I'm going to preach the gospel, but I'm not expecting any conversion. I'm going to call people to repent, but I don't really expect it to happen. And you can, you could hear, you can see, it comes out not just in the, in the proclamation itself, but that misses the point of the, of, of the doctrine itself. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't stop there. It, it's what leads us into why we need unconditional election and you know the the l and the i so um it, it's a danger for pastors because they become a pessimist they they uh they approach the, the their pulpit ministry defeatist 
And uh, as I understand scripture, uh, again, uh, I'm not post-millennial beating the drum of, of, of victory. I, I, I am what Sam Waldron calls an optimistic amillennialist. I believe Romans 1.16 tells me that it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And so I go to the pulpit expectant, uh, and that affects our prayer too. Do we pray in faith or do we pray in doubt? Do we ask God to actually convert sinners, doubting that he's going to do it? That's kind of what's operating with that mindset. And so that's why I uh, uh, want to ward and encourage pastors not to be so pessimistic as they approach this doctrine of repentance. Yeah, it's like we can take our, our good doctrines and take them too far. Yeah. And it's yeah. a danger if we're not careful. Um, and then finally, you talked a little bit about conversion experience and the role that that can play in our own subjective understanding of our conversion. So how can that be a help, but how could it also be a danger? Well, certainly a help in that you want to be able to point to... I don't want to say you have to point to a moment in time because some people may not know the moment in time of conversion per se, but there should be a clear change of life. So that's what I would say is the the benefit of, of a conversion experience notion. The danger is, though, for those who don't have quite the stark contrast, they didn't grow up and live a life in um, deep in sin. The the change is going to be there. Their hatred for th- sin will be present in truly a truly repentant person. But if they gauge their repentance based on how significant their experience is, they might not think they've actually had that experience. And at that point, you're not putting your uh, you're not you're not putting your faith in Christ. You're putting your faith in yourself and your experience. You're not laying hold of Christ. You're laying hold of faith itself. So it's faith in faith rather than faith in Christ. And that's actually how repentance comes in because. Uh, if we're gauging our repentance based on our experience, then we're not turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. And so if, if we ga- gauge it on the uh, level of experience that we've had, uh, it really, I, I think what we're actually doing is trying to confuse assurance with saving faith. Assurance making you think, I, I, I'm not a true believer, I'm not truly repentant unless I know that I'm assur- I have the assurance. And I, I've seen that be detrimental for a lot of young people too. A lot of a lot of young people are hesitant to um, go the full way, go into the waters of baptism because they're waiting for an experience. That's part of the water that we drink in our our culture too. We we emote. We don't necessarily think so well. Mm-hmm. So I think I've been rambling. I forgot your question. But the point <laughs> the point is um, there is a point there. There is a sense that yes, everyone should know the experience of of repentance and conversion. They even if they were goody two shoes, they should know that. What changed them was no longer keeping and doing good for the sake of promoting himself and doing it for the glory of God versus, you know, the, the worst sinner. And I think I might have used the illustration of myself and my wife. That's exactly me and my wife. I was a terrible sinner. She grew up in the church, very faithful, and her conversion was not stark. But she's no less saved. She's no less repentant than I am. And uh, we shouldn't base our assurance on that experience. All right, and I have one uh, question for you there on the uh, the uh, interpretation of the confession here in paragraph fifteen one. Well, we'll just go get Jim Renahan and we'll okay. settle. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I'll read it for uh, the audience here. Um, such as such of the elect as are convi- converted in riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. And you mentioned that there are basically three interpretations of this uh, this um, 
paragraph, and I wanted to ask you, what are those interpretations that, if you feel like it, give uh, which one you uh, lean towards? I said there's three in that there's three expositions of the confession either about to be published or already published. So there's probably more than that, actually. Mm. Um, the three, and, and it really comes down to three different issues. Uh, why does chapter 15, why was it rewritten by Savoy and then adopted by London? Um, why do they start with paragraph one the way they do? And then what does riper years mean? I hear riper years, I think of someone aged, someone elderly, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily uh, have to be what it means, though it's used that way too in, in uh, the literature. So um, the, the three views broadly given, really, I only, I only think one view satisfactorily answers all three of those, whereas the other two do give helpful treatment and true treatment uh, to, to the Bible, but I'm not sure that they're dealing with a historical question. Uh, so that, I would favor the, the, the one that gives the historical situation, and uh, I'll, I'll, I call that the historical argument, and that's where it, it takes up the matter of, of the Savoy uh, Synod having to deal with this issue of uh, can uh, infants truly be regenerated if they never show repentance? And it was accused that they taught that all infants who die in infancy uh, are damned. And uh, our confession, theirs as well, speaks of elect infants. And so they had to prove that. And one of the ways they would say that is that this doctrine of repentance excuse me, only deals with those of riper years, which is to say anyone not an infant. So you could be a four-year-old and be considered riper years all the way to 94 years old and be riper years. So that's the historical view. I think that kind of sets uh, a good foundation of why it begins that way, to give the legitimacy of 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 uh, of bringing into this confession, uh, bringing into this, this doctrine, that we're not separating off uh, infants. We're just saying it's this is not to treat that matter. That's back in chapter 10, paragraph 3. The other two views kind of indicate that riper years is someone uh, older, someone aged, and either that means... I'm trying to remember my notes now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they have a pastoral understanding that um, paragraph uh, 1 of chapter 15 is to indicate to the pastors, you don't just preach to the young people who are not in deep in sin. You still preach repentance to the older, riper years, if it means older, no matter what. You preach regardless of their uh, prevalency of sin or, or, or their age. You, you preach to, to young and old alike. Uh, the other view would say, kind of what we were, you were asking about before, um, that it's to take up the notion that you can be young, you can be old, you can have this distinct um, conversion experience or hardly, you know, any kind of, you know, noticeable difference in your lifestyle. Um, repentance re- uh, applies to every elect, you know, equally. It's ordinarily to everyone, though it's not experienced in the same way, in the, in the same ordinary way that, you know, person A versus person B. So that was the, the two other views of, of expositions of the confession that are, are or about to come out. And, uh, and like I said, the last one is the one I tend towards. And uh, that's also from an exposition that is soon to come out. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciated your lecture. And I believe that it will be posted online at some point, correct? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Well, (laughs) hopefully it will be. Talk to Pastor Jeff about that. (laughs) Our listeners will be able to uh, listen to that. So thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep.